With my busy life, I use Shipt same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am Ben Rhodes. It has only been three days since our emergency pod, and that feels like about three years because a lot of things have happened. We began Monday uh, with a call for a potential summit between the president of Russia and the president of the United States. Um, and that feels like a really long time ago because we saw Vladimir Putin really cast the die yesterday. We saw him hold a Russian Security Council meeting with his top advisors. Uh, in which they each, looking very threatened and uncomfortable, uh, endorsed the idea of recognizing the so-called People's Republic of Donetsk and People's Republic of Luhansk, the two Russian separatist-controlled uh, regions um, of Ukraine that we talked about uh, on the last podcast. Um, then after um, that meeting came a very long and very troubling and rambling speech uh, by Vladimir Putin, in which he seemed to question Ukraine's very right to exist. And we get into that today in a very fascinating conversation that I have with Max Seddon, who's the FT Financial Times uh, reporter in Moscow. Then on Tuesday, we saw Putin double down on his announcements for Monday as Russian lawmakers gave him permission to use military force outside of Russia to back the separatists and to back the claim of the separatists to the entire Donbass region. And so you'll recall from uh, our last podcast, right now, the Russian-backed separatists only control a portion of that area. Uh, Russia has now authorized the use of military force to essentially claim the independence of the entire region of Donbass. And I think based on Putin's rhetoric, uh, there are obviously worries that he's going to go farther than just that. Putin also gave a list of three demands that had to be met by Ukraine and the West. International recognition of Crimea as part of Russia, an end to Ukraine's NATO membership bid, and a halt of all weapons shipments to Ukraine. So Putin continuing to set the diplomatic bar far above where he knows the United States or the West is willing to go. And certainly the people of Ukraine have been willing to go. Uh, the world's leaders and diplomats have decried the situation. They've blasted Russia for violating Ukraine's sovereignty. And we've seen the beginning of some sanctions in response. This includes Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz announcing the suspension of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia uh, into Germany. This is a major step uh, that will impair Russia's capacity to export uh, energy into Europe. We saw the UK sanctioning a number of Russian banks and three oligarchs um, in what was a less dramatic uh, announcement, but nonetheless, the first step out of the UK. Uh, we saw the European Union's top diplomats say that uh, a package of sanctions has been approved by unanimity with member states that will hurt Russia and will hurt a lot. Then we saw President Biden uh, today announcing the first wave of U.S. sanctions in response uh, that also included uh, a number of Russian banks uh, and a, a wide net of Putin-associated oligarchs and, and cronies targeted with sanction while indicating that there'd be more. And I think this is just a first step out of the administration. I actually think that the most powerful 
statement in response to what Putin's been doing in Ukraine came from an un unlikely source. And it was at a meeting, an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council from the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations, Martin Kamani. Uh, here we have a, a brief clip. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. We must complete our recovery from the embers of dead empires in a way that does not plunge us back into new forms of domination and oppression. So what does all this mean? <laughs> I think we've been pretty clear the last few episodes that the assumption was Putin was going to do something. The nature of what we've seen the last couple of days is about as troubling a scenario as we could possibly face. Because in Putin's speech, he really wasn't focused principally on even questions around NATO or European security, despite the recognition of these two so-called people's republics that are basically invented by Russia. He wasn't even focused on that. He was focused on deep-rooted historical grievance uh, and a sense that not only has Russia been wronged, but that Ukraine itself shouldn't even really exist. Um, he even cast the blame on Lenin, on the Soviets, on the Bolsheviks um, for somehow creating Ukraine, which is not at all true. Um, but this was the ideology of a man that does not seem like he's going to be content simply recognizing a couple of invented people's republics in eastern Ukraine. It did feel like someone preparing the Russian people for a much more significant escalation. It didn't seem to be a man who gives a shit, frankly, about global condemnation, global sanctions, global efforts to call out what he's doing. Uh, it seemed like somebody who's been, frankly, waiting a long time, uh, maybe his whole life, um, for this particular moment. As you'll hear in our interview, it also seemed like a man who is deeply, deeply cut off from any voices, uh, any advisors, any countervailing forces who might be urging caution or restraint. Uh, if you look at that Security Council meeting, clearly Russia has become a place that is entirely a one-man, one-rule scenario um, in which it's terrifying to voice opposition to what uh, the leader, Vladimir Putin, uh, is ordering. And even in the nature of his announced deployments into eastern Ukraine, we see all manner of pretext for escalation. So uh, allegedly to Putin, these Russian troops are moving into eastern Ukraine to be so-called peacekeepers. Um, that inevitably, combined with the fact that they're claiming the entire Donbass region, will offer him plenty of opportunity to claim that somehow Ukraine has been the aggressor. Uh, and we continue to see propaganda, disinformation in Russian media alleging all manner of Ukrainian aggression uh, against either Russian forces or uh, Russian-backed separatists or ethnic Russians or Russian language speakers. Um, so everything feels like it's coalescing uh, behind a strategy of continued escalation into Ukraine.
I think it is notable that we saw uh, a, a, such a swift announcement of sanctions, including, and probably most importantly, the cancellation of Nord Stream 2 pipeline, given that Germany had been seen as the most cautious and reticent uh, to move to significant sanctions. Um, but we should be clear that, you know, it's quite likely that sanctions don't really matter to Putin, that he's priced this in, that he thinks he can weather them like he's weathered sanctions in the past. And the reality is he's got a lot of cash. He's got a big rainy day fund there of over $600 billion, as we've talked about. Um, and when you're talking about the short term, you know, he can weather it. I think the bigger question is, again, whether he is overreaching dramatically and whether the combination of uh, Russian casualties in Ukraine and an economic hit to Russia and a direct hit potentially through these sanctions, if they're enforced robustly to his inner circle, can ultimately boomerang back on him. Uh, but that will take some time. And in the interim, we could be faced with a very damaging and destructive war in Ukraine. Um, and we talk later on the show with uh, Samantha Power about what the US AID is doing to prepare for humanitarian contingencies, including masses of displaced people and, and refugees um, out of Ukraine. So, you know, look, we're, we're in a perilous moment here um, globally. We're in a perilous moment uh, in terms of the risk of, of escalation because Putin could respond to our sanctions with cyber attacks or efforts to destabilize democracies, uh, to mess around on NATO's borders and other countries like Moldova, um, to potentially even mess around in, in NATO itself. And today, the U.S. indicated that it's preparing to send troops to the three Baltic countries, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, uh, as a part of that continued effort to reassure them. So this is going to be with us for some time now. I hope uh, that the, the worst kind of escalation does not take place, um, that there can be some kind of, of off-ramp from this. Um, but I think, uh, as you'll hear in our interviews today, um, we also have to be prepared for the possibility that we just are dealing with a 69-year-old leader of a nuclear-armed country uh, who has always been um, willing to be not just autocratic at home, but aggressive abroad, but who may be even in a different phase uh, of his own life and his own leadership uh, that can put a lot of people at risk. So with that, uh, we're going to move after the break to my interview with Max Seddon, who is the FT reporter in Moscow. Uh, and then we will hear from Samantha Power uh, about USCID's efforts to both respond to the situation in Ukraine, but also Sam walks us through the latest in terms of the effort to promote vaccination uh, around the world to deal with COVID and ends on a bright spot. I hope you stick around to the end because uh, Samantha takes us around uh, a tour of some of the bright spots uh, of, of the work the USAID is doing around the world, but also some of the bright spots for democracy and some new strategies um, that have been embraced in combating uh, autocracy and kleptocracy. So stick around for it. And uh, after the break, we'll hear from Max Seven.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Good morning. Baby, it's a brand new day. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh, man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. Listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, we are very pleased to be joined by Max Seddon, who is with the Financial Times in Moscow. Uh, he's been with the Financial Times since 2016 in their Moscow bureau as a reporter. He was previously a foreign affairs reporter for BuzzFeed News, as well as a reporter for the Associated Press in Moscow. Uh, Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I just want to start, obviously, with uh, Putin's speech and, and kind of uh, very unusual televised National Security Council meeting yesterday. Um, was there a sense there's been so much warning, obviously, out of the United States about this impending war and Russia seems to have veered between uh, ridiculing the warnings of war while kind of turning up the dial on their, uh, you know, charges of Ukrainian uh, ethnic cleansing or aggression um, in, in particularly in the Donbass. Um, was there a sense yesterday that this is the <laughs> the ramp up to war? This is the kind of thing that Putin is going to do if he if he's really going to uh, uh, not just recognize these two uh, Russian invented republics, but actually go into Ukraine. Uh, more significantly? Oh, absolutely. It was uh, a completely shocking speech. I think uh, 
uh, even even uh, among everyone who's watched this this uh, troop build up in slow motion over the last few few months. So what was really taken aback what was was by just how angry Putin was in the way that I'd never really seen before. He he seemed almost personally affronted by the existence of Ukraine as a country in its current form. And he made an extremely clear hour-long speech, doesn't really get into the whole Donbass issue in eastern Ukraine where the separatists are until about minute yeah. 45, 50. And uh, you do not make a speech like that if all you are are doing is uh, just just preparing to to recognize these states. It's uh, very very clear this is something that's been on his his mind uh, that he uh, is is under this you know, deep COVID isolation for almost two years now. He spent a lot of time yeah. reading some incorrect history books and talking to some uh, people with some uh, pretty pretty bizarre ideas. And this is the result. This the, this is it. Yeah. I well I wanted to I'm glad you raised this. Uh you know, Putin's obviously been in charge for a long time. Um uh my recollection right in 2009 when he was prime minister when when Obama comes into office, Medvedev is president. Did feel like there was a kind of larger circle of people that at least had some input into what was going on. You could feel even by the end of the Obama years that that circle had kind of shrunk. And then we reached the point yesterday where we watched really just a performance where these advisors were, you know, almost afraid that they were going to say the wrong thing, you know, and it feels like he's listening to, to nobody except the voices in his head. I mean, you've been in Moscow a while. What is the sense of, of, of how big or small Putin's circle is um, and how that might be shaping what would be, you know, obviously the most consequential decision, even with all the things he's done, probably of his presidency, if he goes with a full invasion. I think that uh, what we really saw was that there is no circle, circle of of uh, around Putin anymore. It's it's uh, it's like Louis, I believe Louis the Fourteenth of France. Uh, my, don't don't yeah. check that. L'état c'est moi. Uh, I am the state. And uh, this this was really the defining moment in what you could call the third act of of Putin, where the circle of people around them has got smaller and smaller. And so as his his worldview, I talked to recently to a former senior official in the Kremlin who who said that uh, it used to be that he see, sees everything in three hundred sixty degrees. Now it's more like 60 degrees. And so in terms yeah. of people who he talks to, the first uh, 10, 12 years, maybe really up uh, up through to, to Crimea, that was the sort of uh, the, the, the fake news era the of, of uh, what was called managed democracy, where they kept many of the outward yeah. trappings of democracy, but but they governed not really through repression, but but through uh, f- uh, fake news and manipulation and things like that. Then and and uh, the sort of clashes that were de- were, were described were uh, between the uh, so-called Siloviki, these p- people with uh, KGB backgrounds. Uh, many of them were actually in the KGB counterintelligence with. Uh, uh, with Putin in Leningrad in the 1970s, and they they control pretty much all the security ministries, a lot of the state companies. And on the other hand, you had uh, who, these people who were called the systemic liberals, who were more the ones that you know you would have been been, been dealing with. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. the, and 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 Putin was seen as almost this kind of King Solomon figure, like he was uh, th- this arbiter between them. And then Crimea was the point where where he broke with that definitively, and. Um, 
if if I'm if I'm getting my facts right, uh, when when he decided to do Crimea, he had a security council meeting uh, that, that, that was inconclusive. Then, by his own recollection, he stayed up until seven in the morning with 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 four mm-hmm. aides, the, the 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 three security guys, and uh, Shoigu, the the defense minister, where where they decided to do that. And what I thought was very symbolic about this meeting yesterday it was uh, in in the same fancy room in in the Kremlin where they had the ceremony to to annex Crimea. And uh, this this shows you how even compared to that, things things have really shifted to the point where it's it's not you know, that he's the sort of you know uh, arbiter. It's uh, not even that there's some sort of little politburo. It's really he's yeah. become he's become the czar. He's become the god emperor. And uh, what was what was really remarkable to me was uh, the, the, these people who. Uh, you know your your average uh, armchair criminologist, and I absolutely put myself in that category. We were <laughs> all all writing articles, you know, really, you know, up, up to the uh, up to the minute that happened, saying, "Oh, you know, Putin, he his uh, circle is getting smaller and smaller. He's only listening to the to these guys who say a lot of crazy things, like the West is collapsing because of gay marriage and people want to have sex with animals." Yeah. And um, I'm not making this up. Like the head of Security Council no, says this yeah, all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and they and they and they. Um, and they want to destroy Russia and 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 things like that. But then we we got to see uh, not live on TV uh, because it was uh, uh, it was some sort of prepackaged thing that they just put on TV without warning. Uh, but it was uh, you you saw some of these uh, same guys uh, pretty pretty much grilled uh, by by Putin to say uh, what what he wanted to hear. And I and I was wondering afterwards. What what was the point of even doing this? If uh, you know, yeah. even during the meeting, uh, Mishustin, the prime minister, he said, you know, we've been preparing for the economic consequences of doing this for a few months now, and uh, obviously the troops, you know, didn't didn't arrive on the border yesterday, and you you don't act like like Putin did. You don't do this theater of of saying, oh, I haven't discussed this with any of you guys. You know, <laughs> I I uh, just really want to hear what you think. I'm like, oh, great, you all think the same thing. And uh, then turn around a couple hours later. Oh, by the way, here is my hour-long angry speech uh, that, that I wrote myself uh, as uh, the Kremlin confirmed today. Uh, after spending God knows how long poring over these strange books that he reads and uh, original historical documents as well. And yeah, yeah. My, I, I thought about this, and the, the conclusion I come to, and this this is just my speculation, but what it really felt to me was that it was some some kind of loyalty ritual. There's there's a Russian expression, a krugovaya paruka, which is a sort of mutual, um, not not so much as responsibility, as, as, as almost a kind of guilt. It was like he was trying to, to get them all to say, you know, this is where we're going. I want you all to, to all publicly say that you're going down with me because you know, some of them did, did not look particularly thrilled uh, about about having to do this, the prime minister Mishustin, he he basically tried to uh, sneak sneak out of there, uh, and Putin was like, "Hey, where are you going? Oh, come on, say like, do you want to recognize the separatists or not?" And then there was this absolutely extraordinary scene. I nearly fell out of my chair watching this. Was you had Sergei Narishkin, the 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 head of foreign intelligence, one of the th- three people who go back to the very, very beginning with, with Putin in, in, in the KGB, and he's seen as most sophisticated of them because he was seen as good enough a spy to, to serve in, in the West during the Cold War. We don't even really know what he did when, yeah. when he was there. And uh, he, he went up there, and uh, both, both he and one of the other biggest, biggest hardliners, Nikolai Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, uh, they, they both suggested, oh, maybe we should just use this as, as a threat. 
that uh, to try to force uh, Ukraine and the West to to give us what we want uh, in 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 a matter of days. And then then Putin started grilling him. He said, "You know, Sergey, speak clearly. What what do you want?" And then Narishkin just starts. He looks really flustered. Starts stumbling over yeah. uh, his his words. And at the end, he says, "Oh, I uh, yes, I, I I do I do support it. I support bringing <laughs> the, the Donbass into Russia." And Putin had to say, well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about recognizing their independence. And uh, Narishka's like, oh, yeah, great, great. Uh, I'll, I'll yeah. do that. And, um, and that Try was Try to it. remember and, the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've just, I mean, obviously it's a, you know, it, it's a highly staged managed, managed process. It was edited. There were some, some speeches that, that weren't shown on TV. We don't know what, what, uh, you know, what some of these people said. But at the same time, uh, it's it's it was this really unbelievable message, not not, not just to the public and not just to the people in that room, but I think to you know, everyone who's working in in, in the Russian system is, is you know I am the arbiter. This is my decision. Only I decide if if I can do this to my closest allies. You know, just think what what will happen to anyone else who steps out of line. And there it goes. And the optics of it, of course, were just unbelievable because. Uh, 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 Shaw Walker for the Guardian made made the point on Twitter that you know out of all the times you know that Putin actually needed a really big table because you had twenty two people in in the room with yeah. him he he didn't use it these uh, he's in this <laughs> desk and all these officials are just just lined up on these chairs about twenty feet from him uh, so they can't breathe on him apparently it seems to be some sort of weird social distancing measures that aren't grounded in any recognizable science. And one yeah. by one, they're made to give these kind of school reports to the principal. It was just absolutely stunning. Like, like, like and the sort of thing you, it, it's, it's the czar's court really is, is yeah. what it reminded me of. Yeah. And quite worrying too. I mean, it's never a good thing when, uh, leaders with some of his impulses become that isolated, uh, and have that degree of absolute power. I, I think it's important for people to understand that you, you can be a, you know, a dictatorial autocratic figure and, and not have kind of total control. Um, but, but, you know, clearly the optic he's giving is that, that he has this kind of total control. I, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, we've talked, in, including on this podcast, to, for instance, we had John and M. Sovon uh, talking about, you know, the contrast with Crimea. In that case, you had this kind of patriotic euphoria in Russia. A lot of Russians, you know, truly believe Crimea should be part of Russia. Um, uh, Alexei Navalny has said as much to me uh, when I've talked to him about this. Um, but you don't sense that now. <laughs> you, know, um, you, you know, and it's hard, obviously, to get a sense of Russian broader public opinion. Um, but it, it, what is your sense of the mood there? I, I, I imagine that politics is not easy for, for people, even just kind of ordinary people, to talk about. But beyond underneath all this propaganda, you know, what do, what do you get a sense of the Russian people's appetite for more war, more escalation with the West, more sanctions coming their way? Um, uh, how, how, how firm is the support underneath all of the theatrics we watched yesterday? I think uh, there actually is a little bit of polling on this. Uh, if you look at the, the Levada Center, which is the only uh, independent pollster that really operates in Russia, and they've been under a lot of pressure from 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 the government. Uh, they, they did the poll at the end of last year, showing that you know on the one hand the uh, Kremlin's messaging on what's happening and who is responsible it seems to be broadly working, but at the same time people aren't really 
that interested in it. And uh, the the uh, and the, the Denise Volkov from from the, from the center has has said that that, that really this just it, it isn't what it's what people are worried about because real real incomes are are down some uh, something like ten percent since the annexation yeah. of Crimea. That's actually not really much to do with the annexation of of of, of Crimea. Uh, the sanctions haven't really had that kind of effect, but but uh, p- people are worried about pocketbook issues. Inflation is 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 rampant. What what people are worried about are are the prices uh, the price of staple goods, uh, yeah. what what the mortgage rate is, and 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 things like that. And uh, you you couple that with the fact that uh, the the Donbas, Eastern Ukraine, unlike Crimea, th- there there was never the same kind of sentimental attachment that uh, yeah. even even you know supposed liberals like like Navalny. Have have with Crimea uh, the the use of that back in twenty fourteen fifteen the propaganda I think was uh, really more than anything else to make uh, to make Crimea look good because the message that it sends and uh, uh, last time I went to Crimea was in twenty sixteen uh, every single person I, I I spoke to said this so that uh, uh, absolutely worked was uh, you know oh just just. Uh, uh, you you don't want it to be to be like this, do you? And uh, obviously, you know, people don't want their their homes to be shelled with with artillery. They they don't want their their friends and loved ones to to die. It's a pretty simple and 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 powerful message, and one that they were quite successful in in, in blaming on the West. The problem now is is that uh, if uh, you know the U.S. intelligence is is correct, and we we do see see some sort of a uh, massive onslaught in which you know, you know fifty thousand people might die in in a, yeah. in a few days. That's a lot harder to sell. And I've had people even in and around in the Kremlin uh, not just admit this to me, but uh, insist it them, uh, themselves, saying why the why the American reports are are wrong because they wouldn't be able to to sell you know, if if the Ukrainians are a brotherly nation, then why are we killing them? And even yeah. if they could sell that, then uh, if if you really want to want to sack Kiev. A lot of Russians are going to die too, and you've removed uh, the uh, the element of uh, the kind of fig leaf of covert action that you had in in 2014 when it was uh, scarcely credible that they weren't uh, heavily involved in and indeed directing the conflict. But it allowed them to do things like minimize. Um, casualties. You had things like Wagner, the mercenaries that were created basically yeah. as a sort of can, uh, cannon fodder in places like Syria. When you have an open war, on the one hand, you, you can do a lot that you you couldn't do otherwise, like they could use airstrikes to, to neutralize Ukraine's armed forces very effectively because Ukraine doesn't really have any air defenses. But uh, at the same at, at, at the same time, uh, there there is a big downside. And speaking of Volney, he, he 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 just did this big post on on Instagram today where he said that this could be you know in in some ways the beginning of 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 the end. Well, uh, in, yeah. in, uh, for yeah. Putin in the way that for Afghanistan was for for the Soviet Union because you you've got to the point you know, he said where the these guys they think they're great players on Spigny uh, Brzezinski's great chessboard and uh and they uh have have, have gotten to something that they can't really control that's going to have huge consequences for them and they can't really get out of yeah no i mean that i saw that that was you know definitely seizing uh the moment uh from navalny i um i I wanted to ask about those consequences we've heard a lot about sanctions right so we've heard about export controls to deny inputs to the Russian economy. We've heard about sanctions on Russian banks. We've heard about efforts to go after um, the wealth of Putin cronies and, and oligarchs uh, who have money in the West. 
Um, today, uh, Germany canceled the, uh, put on hold at least the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, what, what sanctions do you think the Ru- Russian government is most actually worried about? And what, what sanctions do you think would be most consequential both to that inner circle and, um, uh, and then more broadly to the, the Russian economy and public? I'm not sure any of them actually are are that effective because if if what you're talking about is is the goal of changing Russian Russian policy, this is something that even Obama, when he was still in office, he he admitted this this had not happened. Oh, yeah. And there's a sort of yeah. tendency, you know, maybe you know, um, I I know I know some people on the anti kleptocracy side in in the U.S. and the U.K. will disagree with me, but there's this sort of tendency where it almost feels to me like uh, it's like people say about about communism, you know, these uh, uh, anti kleptocratic sanctions they've they've never been been implemented properly. Whereas if you uh, if, <laughs> if if you follow it from here, uh, what, it, what it looks like is you can ha- you can have the effect. There are various studies of how many percentage points of of, uh, of GDP Russia has lost because of sanctions. It's somewhere between one and a half and three. Uh, remember off the top of my head, World Bank and IMF have done some studies on this. But uh, in in terms of uh, the actual goal of uh, imposing costs on Putin again to change his behavior, it, it really has the the opposite effect. There's this kind of rally round the flag uh, uh, drive that that you yeah. see where 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 it becomes almost a kind of loyalty test, uh, much much in the way that. Um, uh, the the Security Council hearing was. If, if if you want to understand not not just sanctions, but how uh, but how Russia under Putin works, uh, you only have to do one thing. You have to find. Uh, I think it's been translated into English. Uh, Nova Gazeta, the independent Russian newspaper, whose editor yeah. won the Nobel Prize last year uh, in twenty fourteen, they published the uh, uh, the leaked transcript of uh, the meeting of the uh, owners of the Russian uh, soccer league teams when they had yeah. this vote to decide whether to admit the the Crimean teams into into the league and uh, you you have some people like like Vladimir Yakunin who's this uh, ex KGB guy who used to be very close to Putin then then was, that was kicked out after one too many corruption scandals and he's saying I'm already under sanctions because I'm a patriot you must suffer too and then you have this this guy yeah. Sergey Galitsky <laughs> who owns the biggest supermarket chain in in Russia and he and he says you know, Guys, you know, I I am ready to suffer if that's what the president wants. But I'm the largest private employer in in Russia, so I I would like to know that this is actually what he what he what he wants. And uh, then uh, someone says, "Well, why don't we call him and ask him what he wants us to do?" And everyone goes, "Oh no 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 no! That's yeah, that's terrifying." So so going back to sanctions that could that could work now. Um, uh, I I I I don't think it necessarily matters if you sanction you know whether it's three oligarchs like the UK did today, or whether it's uh, yeah. 300 oligarchs, uh, they're, they're not going, I think, I think it's a fantasy to be, to be honest with you, that, that they're just going to go to Putin and say, Hey, Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, you, uh, need, need to get the tanks out of Ukraine. Uh, I'm, I'm about to lose my villa in, 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 in Biarritz. And, yeah. uh, the, the, the way that Putin thinks about this, I think is also, it's, it's changed and it's very hard. And he said, he, he said a few times recently, including, uh, in, in his pronouncements on recognizing the Eastern Ukrainian separatists, that it doesn't matter what we do, uh, because they, because they would find some sort of reason to, 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 to sanction this anyway. He basically, yeah. he, he thinks that 
Russia. He probably is, believes it, that too. I, I oh no, I, th- I, I, I think yeah. absolutely he, he he believes that, and uh, not him, but some of uh, uh, his his top people have said this many times for for years now that they that they think that the that the U.S. is basically hell hell bent on uh, destroying Russia, breaking it up into bits, and uh, using Ukraine as a tool to to do that. Uh, in in terms of what's on the table, I think Nord Stream two. I think that is certainly a. Um, that is a big deal. I was surprised that Schultz went that far, uh, seeing as you know, he's he, he's he's new to the job, only been chancellor for a few months, and he comes from uh, the the SPD, which is a party of, uh, of yeah. Gerhard Schroeder, who is the godfather of Nord Stream and uh, just joined the board of Gazprom. And yeah. uh, I think um, uh, that that obviously long term it does create a lot of problems for for Gazprom because they 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 can't sell the gas. All you have to do is to look at the the maps of uh where where does the gas go? You know, gas is not like oil. You can't put it in a barrel and and just ship it somewhere. You know, the pipelines they go where they go and the gas fields that are in the European part of Russia, you can't just uh turn around and send them to China either because uh the the Ural Mountains are are in the way. So it's it's something that's very difficult to do and that is a big long-term problem for Russia, but also it's somewhere where where Europe is going to suffer. Uh this is this a problem that's that's always been been at the heart of, of of sanctions policy that it's it's very difficult to to do anything really broad without without punishing yourself. So if you look at banking sanctions, it's uh, it's uh, very difficult to completely cut the biggest Russian state banks out of, of the global financial system because you need a loophole so that Germany and Italy and other countries can pay for the gas. Uh, look yeah. look at look at titanium. Uh, Boeing Boeing gets so much of its titanium from Vismpio uh, Avisma in 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 the Urals. Uh, they they can't really replace that. Of all, we saw this in 2018 when the U.S. did sanctions against uh, Oleg Deripaska and and Rusal, and then had to spend next nine months basically doing this kind of embarrassing climb down because it was so disruptive to global supply chains. And that is the yeah. irony of you know the globalized economy. You know, Tom Friedman he he thought oh no two countries with McDonald's will ever ever go to war. Well, not only that, but actually this uh, this interdependence it makes it more more difficult to stop to stop uh, countries like Russia from from uh, ripping up the rule book as it, as it were. It's interesting, you know. And, and you mentioned the kind of anti-kleptocracy crowd of which, you know, I, I guess I try to be, <laughs> think of myself as a part of that. And, but the, one of the things that has gotten less discussion is, is what Navalny does, right? Which is essentially the, the publication of and uh, spotlighting of the wealth and corruption, um, which you have to think, at least if you look at their reaction to Navalny himself and his network, that does seem to make them uncomfortable, you know, because uh, that's what he was doing. And, 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 and look where it got him. I mean, I, I guess to, to end I, I, the, the two part question, one is, do you think that's something that worries, um, if not maybe Putin, the people around him, the, the kind of uh, a kind of relentless effort to expose the degree of wealth that has been accumulated um, and then and, and using that. Uh, what, what, what is this? What is your sense of the current state of Navalny, his trial? Uh, and how he might be impacted by uh, an escalation. You know, is there concerns that that if there's a war and there's uh, Western responses, that the already brutal crackdown there might get even worse and, uh, and might kind of feel like Soviet days, people disappearing and and the, and the like. Uh, so I'll I'll start with with the uh, with the second question. Uh, so uh, my my wife is a reporter actually, and just. Uh, 
And just yesterday, she was in the prison where where Navalny is being held because he is currently on a new trial uh, that is going to keep him there for another 15 years at least. And he said himself that, you know, Mandela was in there for 30 years. They're just going to keep tacking things on. I think it's very difficult to see circumstances under under which he gets out of there while while Putin is still alive, the way things are yeah. are are going, and um, he he sounded very much his 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 usual self. They they sent this guy to testify against him, who who uh, was was some sort of plant who uh, worked in some sort of minor role for a short period of time many years ago in in uh, one of his in one of his offices, and then uh, he he's uh, uh, b- become this sort of professional Navalny hater. He has his own show on Rush Today, <laughs> with, with, which was uh, co-hosted with. Uh, Maria Butna, who, who you may remember oh, for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. And this is nothing but criticized Navalny. That's all that it does. And of course, the show is in Russian because uh, that's, you know, in, in many ways, the real audience for a lot of the stuff is uh, the, the, the people who, who are paying the bills. Uh, for, yeah. for things like Rush Today at the end of the day. And, uh, and so he, he was very much enjoying this absolutely ripping this guy up on on cross-examination and uh from you know what uh, my wife said from what i could see on twitter and and so on it sounded like it was uh absolutely brutal but but at the same time uh there there were very few journalists even even in there uh watching because uh, ukraine is really has really consumed uh, the, the 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 world's attention. There, there was one point because they won't let uh, reporters take uh, electronic devices into the room, and uh, my my wife was was uh, sort of um, uh, in in there with uh, with just him and, and and the court personnel for a bit uh, while the security council meeting was happening. She was like, "Say, what did you know this is happening?" I was like, "What? What? No way! This is this is crazy." And yeah. um, I don't think it's it's not necessarily you know that everything boils down to Navalny. I think for Putin, Navalny is, uh, you know, a, a major irritant, but something that comes from a larger problem, which is what we talked about earlier, yeah. that he thinks the U.S. is trying to destroy him. And he said this many times. He thinks Navalny is a CIA agent who's uh, who's been sent uh, to to destroy Russia. Uh, but I think uh, it's it's uh, definitely very convenient timing for for this trial that they've done it at a time when uh, if if uh, you you believe people like uh, the prime minister uh, or some yeah. people in the Russian parliament uh, whose remarks have come out recently that they've been preparing this for for some time. I I don't think that was an enormous coincidence. So they decided to do that. Uh, the the problem. With with Navalny, uh, who um, um, I've been you know, f- um, following him for something like ten years, I've interviewed him maybe a dozen times over mm-hmm. over over that period, and uh, he would have these sort of uh, rises and falls of, of of success and popularity, and there'd be points where you know, he he'd do some really spectacular things. Like five years ago, he did this video about Medvedev that uh, uh, was yeah. the cause for these huge protests, uh, and I thought, oh, you're just never going to top that. That was just a really really good video. Then then they did the palace. And 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 the response to that was was huge. But the problem is, is that uh, if if you are you know that kind of uh, democratic opposition in Russia, you are really like the uh, the frog in, in 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 boiling water, where the temperature keeps rising and rising and rising. Uh, people on the outside are getting used to it, and uh, there there comes you know to to a point where where the pot actually is boiling and you boil to death, and. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think it's uh, also also the uh, and, and and so the result of that is all these things they they just become normal 
very, very fast. I, I remember a year yeah. ago when they named the first journalist foreign agents, and this was you know, absolutely, you know, huge, huge scandal. Uh, now, now it's got to the point where, you know, I have uh, friends who are Russian reporters who uh, they, they check the, the Justice Ministry website every Friday. They see if they've been named foreign agents and they haven't been, been named yet. So they go and get drunk when, when the list comes out and, and they're not yeah. on it. It's become this kind of normal thing. And uh, that, that is, uh, the, I mean, it's not for nothing like, that, that the title of Navalny's blog was the final battle between good and neutrality because uh, in, in many ways that's what he's, had had to overcome, and uh, if you if you look at the video, it had something uh, the Putin's Palace video had something like 125 million views on YouTube or or, or something yeah. like that. But it just doesn't necessarily translate into into people on the streets, and also not everyone who sees that video in in Russia. This is a dynamic that I think is underappreciated sometimes with with a lot of this corruption stuff. It's it's a bit like Trump, where where people don't think, oh, this is so corrupt, and you know why does Putin's toilet brush cost more than my monthly wage? They think, wow, what a cool guy. I I wish I could live like that. Respect. Some people, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think I think that's like more and more widespread than, than a lot of people realize. Yeah. Well, look, this is, uh, I mean, thanks for sharing. This is really good insight into kind of what what's going on there. Um, you you know. I, I, I won't ask you to predict the the events that, that in Ukraine because it's it's happening by the day. But the main takeaways for me are, you know, the incredible kind of isolation and control that Putin has, that kind of means that he almost doesn't need to prepare the public as much as you might normally because he's the guy calling the shots, and that's the main message that he's trying. to I don't do think that, he cares. Um, if you want, I can quickly yeah. run through the options. But I. Uh... Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. 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 What do you think the options are for them? Yeah, they sort of range from grim to extremely grim with tens of thousands of people dying. Uh, So so one thing is uh, what we we talked about earlier that um, you had some of his uh, security officials suggesting that they use uh, recognition as a kind of uh, stick in some sort of negotiations with with the West. I don't think that uh, the Biden administration or the Europeans are much interested in having those kind of talks. But I, I, I talked to some people in around the Kremlin who seem to feel like this is it. This is where they're going to stop. They've sort of done it. Uh, and uh, this is as far as they're they're going to go. Option number two is uh, we, we still don't know, again, you know, what, what the borders of the separatist states that Putin has recognized are are supposed to be. And remember, the the ostensible pretext for this is that they are under uh, Ukrainian attack. And they've been saying today that the Ukrainian attacks are not uh, ceasing. So it's very easy to uh, uh, imagine Russia signing some kind of pretext. And um, it's, it's been striking that um, uh, even compared to 2014, when it was pretty obvious to you know anyone anyone who, who, who paid close enough attention that, that uh, so much of this was was fabricated. Uh, here, it seems like they're not really trying. And, and you get this impression yeah. that a lot, a lot of the people in the system, that they might not have even really known that this was coming. Uh, just, just a week ago, uh, when, when Putin said that they were going to withdraw some troops from the border, there, there was this two-day dunkathon on state TV going, ha ha, you guys predicted the invasion. Yeah. It didn't happen. And then, and then they started laying the groundwork for, for, for recognition on, on Thursday. Uh, so yeah, I think, um, uh, it, it, it is very. Russia has already claimed that it was in some sort of direct firefight with uh, Ukrainian saboteurs who made their way onto Russian territory. It's the first time they've ever acknowledged uh, fighting fighting any Ukrainians 
directly and uh, in, in the entire years of the conflict. And it's very obvious to, uh, it's, it's very easy to, to, to imagine some, some sort of scenario where uh, they, they claim that they've come under attack. And as uh, Putin said, uh, Ukraine will be held responsible for the ensuing bloodshed, which was the chilling yeah. note that he left us all on last night. Yeah. Yeah, well, nothing good. Let's, um, let me. Yeah, yeah I, I, let me just leave you with one more th- uh, quote. I, I was, I was, I was speaking to one of one of uh, the uh, very few uh, Russian Russian commentators, uh, analysts uh, who who saw this coming in in some shape or form. At Tatiana Sanavaya, who's a political consultant, and uh, she said something at the end of our conversation that just made my hair stand on end. I, I, I just said, I, 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 I don't know what to ask you after that. Where she just said, uh, you know, the goal is to end. Ukraine's existence in its current form. No Ukraine, no problem. And that that just stunned me into silence, basically. And uh, if you if you look at what what Putin said, you know, he he really just seems genuinely yeah. affronted by Ukraine existing. And uh, he the the threats were not very veiled. He said, "Oh, you you like decommunization? Well, uh, we'll show you what real decommunization is." And uh, yeah. if I were Ukrainian or even me, just myself, I think that's uh, that's very worrying. Yeah, no, it's the uh, you know throughout this ramp up to where we've gotten um, the idea that you know he's just trying to control the politics in Ukraine, or he's just trying to leverage it for negotiation, or maybe he'll just bite off another chunk of 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 the east uh that doesn't feel like what's happening unfortunately it feels like the the more worst case scenarios uh are are unfolding but but hey look where can people follow your work um you know follow you on social media or uh, watch for your articles yeah so i'm yeah twitter uh, at max Sutton, and uh i i post pretty much everything i write at at the at the ft and of course we are ft.com this uh is not getting off our homepage or front page anytime soon. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. Well, uh, you've been great to follow on this stuff and uh, really appreciate you joining us here. All right. Thanks for having me. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads, free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now we're very pleased to be joined by the USAID administrator uh, and 
best friend of the pod, really, uh, Samantha Power. Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Thank you, Ben. So uh, I want to start with uh, the situation in Ukraine, and and I guess just to uh, you know situate our listeners, I wanted to ask you what what has been the nature of USAID's engagement inside of Ukraine, and I imagine that through that engagement, you know, you have both staff and kind of civil society contacts who who are there. Um, what are you hearing from them? Are you concerned about them? You know, what's the the state of of, of play for USAID right now? Well, it's a great question because it's a great window into what Ukraine itself has made itself uh, since 2014 and the last time we were in the midst of a crisis of this magnitude. Basically, USAID has worked since 1992, but really concentrated since 2014 to build a more resilient, democratic Ukraine. You know, the people spoke and wanted to integrate uh, with Europe. They wanted to build a rule of law. You've met a lot of the young people who got involved in either civil society or really interestingly, unlike a lot of countries in the region, in politics, actually yeah. becoming MPs and becoming part of the scrum. And what has been amazing to me since I've come to USAID is to kind of unpack all that the American people have done in support of that effort. So it's everything from what you'd expect training of judges mm-hmm. to try to strengthen the rule of law, anti-corruption mechanisms to make it easier to start a business in Ukraine, because of course we want there to be economic opportunities as part of the democracy dividend that has been lacking so often when yeah. there's been a democratic opening. So a ton in the economic space, but as you as you know, uh, a real emphasis on independent media, on not just, again, the anti-corruption bodies and trying to make the government change and liberalize, but the oversight mechanisms outside, uh, you know, whether it's the journalists doing the muckraking uh, or we have people also tracking uh, disinformation, you know, partners of ours who we support as they prepare daily or weekly digests on just what the latest disinformation play is uh, by the Russian Federation. We, our partners do a lot uh, near the line of conflict, because we know that Vladimir Putin's number one goal is to convince people in Russian occupied territory that everything that happens on the Ukrainian government held side of the line is hostile to them, um, is uh, about denying them economic opportunities and other things. Again, part of this yeah. propaganda and these lies over so many years. And yet the best antidote to those lies is actual exposure and collaboration and cross-line uh, work and cross-line cultural and artistic projects and so forth. So it's one of our largest missions, the USAID mission in Ukraine, and it's on everything from strengthening democratic institutions to strengthening democratic watchdogs yeah. to also working with the government on things like cybersecurity and energy diversification. Yeah. So if you think about what is the, the toolkit that the government needs to move to the next phase of its journey, which is looking westward and giving its young people an opportunity to modernize and become part of the democratic world. That also includes making sure that the institutions are in place to protect against cyber attacks and to be able to be energy independent ultimately, which is something that the people in that country crave in light of the intimidation and bullying that has been such a feature uh, of life in Putin's neighborhood for so long. Yeah. 
And now with the movement of the embassy uh, from Kiev to Lviv uh, in the West and the kind of downsizing of it, uh, what does that do to your presence? I mean, presumably you're part of that discussion. Your, your people are moving to uh, obviously not the people who are grantees, but uh, your staff. Uh, do you still have a presence there? Yeah, let, let me say a few a few things about sort of what the recent weeks and months have entailed, because everything I've just described to you is our programming building this new Ukraine, this democratic and we hope more prosperous and more independent Ukraine. Of course, as um, Putin has put his forces on a war footing and deployed them and and created the specter of mass violence in Ukraine, our emphasis has shifted a lot to humanitarian contingency yeah. operations and what that might look like. So thinking through the various scenarios, and we still, as we speak today, of course, don't know precisely what scenario we are likely to be operating under, but we want to be in a position to support Ukrainian people if they move in mass yeah. from the towns where they are currently living, if they come under shell or shell fire or uh, missile attack. Uh, we want to be it, to be able to ensure that uh, the shelter provisions, mm-hmm. you know, the cash that they might need if they've had to leave their their homes in a hurry, that all that is is ready too. So, you know, starting really in October, November, December, we were calling up the Europeans, calling up the UN, trying to get people to focus in advance uh, on what we what our intelligence uh, and our messaging you know indicated was afoot which is that putin was moving toward doing something unprecedented even for putin and yeah. initially honestly ben it was hard to get people's attention you know people all of us really have a hard time imagining things we have not yet seen yeah. and so all people could really wrap their minds around was a slight escalation along the line of conflict or maybe even a significant escalation but believing that the systems that we've been drawing on since 2014 would be sufficient. And we were saying, no, look, there is a very significant possibility that this is going to be a much more uh, extreme scenario with a a mammoth invasion that moves people out of lands where they have been living, uh, even as the conflict has occurred in the East, uh, you know, the situation elsewhere has been uh, relatively stable. And and it it was hard to get people's attention. So what we have now, or we have our development partners on the ground who do the cybersecurity, the energy, the civil society, the, the journalism work, um, those are run really on the ground by Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And while there is, of course, an American presence and an expat presence, and many of those individuals have left the country, heeding the warnings by the State Department and others, Ukrainians are still there saying, you know, we want to stay. We've lived uh, under the specter of Russian violence for a long time, and they are not going to deter us from doing this work, from fighting misinformation, from strengthening the rule of law. I will say that's gotten harder the last few days as it starts to dawn on people, you know, with 150 to 190,000 troops perched, uh, you know, that they, that they really, that that programming may be, may be in jeopardy. And so now we're working with them to make sure that, uh, they can telework if they need to, you know, that they need not necessarily work from the areas that they were working. If they want to continue doing the work, even in this crisis mode, uh, that they should put their the personal, their personal safety and the safety of their families first. And, and Ben, as a person who runs USAID, I also must say that all the programming we've been doing in the country 
the beating heart of USAID's work around the world is our local staff. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, of the 10,000 people who work from, for USAID globally, 4,000 are local nationals of the countries in which we work. So a big er- area of focus for, for our team is also helping ensure that those individuals are, are looking out for their families and their loved ones and, and you know, that we are supporting them. And so most of them too, though, have chosen to stay in Kyiv. Um, you know, more than 85% of USAID staff huh. are staying right where they've lived, uh, you know, for generations. Some have moved to Lviv. Uh, we, USAID, moved our mission director uh, with the embassy to yeah. be in a position to continue that humanitarian planning and to be supporting our partners. But everybody else is still working for the USAID mission in Ukraine, just doing so remotely as the pandemic, of course, had forced us to do well before this crisis. And so looking, I mean, again, it appears like, you know, this could be the worst case scenario, but, you know, President Biden himself uh, has referred to potential for an effort to take Kyiv. Um, so I- inhabiting a worst case scenario of a large scale Russian uh, military invasion. Um, I imagine that you mentioned displaced peoples. Uh, there's the issue of internally displaced peoples that you kind of alluded to. There's also, I guess, the potential for refugee flows. Um, have you talked to uh, neighboring countries? Is there is there a plan for the potential of large numbers, if not millions of Ukrainians being displaced inside the country or moving into neighboring states? And is that kind of the principal role that USAID would play in the event of a significant escalation from here? I spoke today, in fact, with um, the Polish official tasked with figuring out how Poland would respond to a, a mass refugee flow. Yeah. And it was quite reassuring. I mean, again, it's it, those aren't happy conversations under any circumstances, but um, you know, they are enlisting emergency preparedness, firefighters, others to be in a position if needed to build transit facilities. But the most important um, indication, of course, is how welcoming they are prepared to be uh, to Ukrainians. So I think, you know, you would see a very, very open door and, and it's not as if Polish citizens need to be reminded yeah. uh, of the specter of Russian uh, repression or aggression uh, so I think you, you'd ex- there are already an awful lot of um, family ties and work ties. There are more than a million Ukrainians live and work in Poland today already. Um, and so the combination, I think, of humanitarian visas, work permits, um, asylum grants, uh, I, I think there'll be a, a good welcome. And, and again, I think Poland's in a, in a strong position um, to be able to welcome even the more extreme scenarios uh, of numbers of, of Ukrainians coming across. Inside Ukraine, again, for months, we've been trying to um, use the information that we had to ensure that there was multiple scenarios being taken into account and not just, again, a memory of what happened in 2014 or 2015 and an assumption that that would be, that it would be more of the same. And just to give you one example, of one of the outcomes of that, the World Food Program actually was involved in Ukraine in the immediate crisis of 2014, 2015, around then, and then pulled out uh, a few years ago, believing that it had kind of stabilized. And even though there's mass uh, humanitarian need in the East still, 
um, uh, around the line of conflict. Uh, it was just different organizations that were meeting those needs. Well, the World Food Program, because of the appeals that we've been making to be ready for any scenarios, is now back and positioned to be supportive of efforts to help internally displaced. Hmm. Again, until we know precisely how Russian troops would yeah. enter yeah. and, the, and the, the particular vectors of displacement, what we have are kind of multiple playbooks, basically, depending on these different scenarios. But I, I do feel like we've We've had several months uh, to prepare, and, and hopefully we'll, there'll be a chaos as always at the beginning. But we'll be in a position to meet these, the needs of these of these individuals who just don't deserve yeah. any of what's coming at them. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the work that uh, not only you, but as you said, your local staff and everybody's doing. It's 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 so important, and it's such a contrast to the kind of worldview that. Vladimir Putin represents and <laughs> he spoke about yesterday in that kind of unhinged rant. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, COVID as well. Um, obviously, that's been a, a, a very strong focus of yours. Uh, last time you were on, we talked about your kind of at, the, at that time nascent efforts to begin to disseminate vaccines and deal with uh, vaccine inequity around the world. We're now at this kind of strange phase of the virus where some countries are trying to go back to normal. Uh, we don't know if there's going to be a new variant, but what remains the case is that the best protection against even new variants, right, is the broadest possible vaccination of the global uh, public. Uh, what what is the current? What's your current focus? Uh, you know, I think people may see occasionally announcements of this many doses going to this country, but strategically, um, where do you see this effort going now, and what what are you focused on in terms of the next phase of the COVID fight? Thank you for asking, because I do think there's some in the world who want to move on. And, and you know, we really do believe um, until everybody's safe, nobody's safe. And while, um, you know, it's true that that Omicron, which was so transmissive, mercifully proved far less deadly in part because so many people had been vaccinated, but also in part because it was a less deadly variant. The next variant may not look like Omicron, and and so we cannot take our, our feet off the gas as we think about uh, the global effort to bring about um, mass vaccination. Where we are now is that we are focused on the WHO target of getting 70% of the world vaccinated by the end of this year. Okay. And that's a target that President Biden embraced last September at a summit where he convened the world's leaders to kind of rally behind that target. And honestly, the gating issue that we talked about when we were last together, I think it was supply, 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 right? Yeah. That's where a lot of the equity questions were fairly raised about how we and our families were able to get vaccinated well before a single vaccination might have reached a high risk person, you know, in most developing countries. Well, President Biden, starting last June, began to lead the world by donating uh, vaccines and we now have uh, commitments of 1.3 billion vaccines that we've made uh, to distribute for free, no strings attached. That's a distinguishing feature of the U.S.'s so-called vaccine diplomacy. And again, we view it as both good for the countries that are receiving the vaccines and, of course, in our own public health interests, so very much something we hope the American people can rally behind. The thing is, though, Ben, one of the things that we found as the vaccines really began to flow. And this was in kind of November, December, you, we, you know, we're talking about 4 million vaccines, you know, landing in a sub-Saharan African capital. 
is that until the the kind of water was flowing through the pipes, yeah. you know, until it was real, not an abstract, okay, we want our vaccines, here's our plan, but real flowing. It was only then that we could see the kind of holes in the pipes. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. And, and, and it was the same in the United States. So this isn't even an issue specific to developing countries. It just was that their vaccines were entering the pipeline uh, far later than ours were. And so we got those startup costs we bore uh, early and often. And, and we have the health infrastructure, the tremendous health infrastructure that we have here. And most of these countries lack that. So what we be- did in the beginning of December is I launched something called Global Vax. Um, and this is an effort to say, look, we're actually at a point now where the major gating issue is no longer supply. That may be an issue down the line. We're going to have to boost the world, you know, but the gating issue now is actually turning vaccines into vaccinations, getting those shots in arms, reaching that last mile, making sure that we're hitting stadiums and, and places of worship and making vaccines accessible because for all the talk of misinformation, and hesitancy. And believe me, that exists in Sub-Saharan Africa, just as it exists here in the United States. The number one impediment, particularly to getting up in the 50, 60, 70% is not even misinformation or hesitancy or resistance. It's just that you got to take off work to schlep yeah, yeah. You know, 20 miles to get to a clinic, yeah. or maybe you don't have the cold chain storage that you need in order to be able to store Pfizer, yeah. which is the vaccine. You can't go down the street to CVS, you know? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, so, so what we're doing with Global Vax, which is building on the, the platforms that we have through PEPFAR, our HIV AIDS program, which has been such a flagship success for so long and mm. has such bipartisan support, is building on some of those platforms because those clinics, those health workers, you know, they can be uh, trained as well to be involved in this effort is to really focus on delivery. And I just offer, because it's a bit of a dark time on, yeah. on planet Earth, but offer some pretty inspiring uh, facts and, and statistics here uh, a, a, around this effort. Basically, in Zambia, for example, where there's a new reformist yep. government, one of the great bright spots in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of governance, uh, the government decided to launch a campaign in December and just decided we're going to go all out for a month and see where we get to. And again, the number one issue, not hesitancy, but accessibility in the, in a single province called the Copper Belt province, they went from 12 to 22% vaccinated in just a single month, Yeah, just surging resources, surging public service announcements, getting sports figures and politicians and religious leaders on side to be, to be helpful. Um, in Uganda, it's even a, a, a more dramatic story where, where the country has gone for first doses they went from 14% to, to, to 47% in just six weeks. Huh. So 14 wow. to 47% of first doses. And once you've got for your first dose in, that's proof of concept, right? Yeah. Then you, you, you know, it's easier to get uh, people to come back. And five of the nine regions in Uganda are now over 55% for first doses. So again, there, there are legitimate, I mean, we, we will all go back over the last couple of years and ask what could we have done differently to get these vaccination numbers up sooner. But by investing in the local plans, in the national health ministries, yeah. using our malaria, our TB, our HIV AIDS, and our other public health partnerships that we at USAID and other government agencies like CDC uh, you know, have maintained for so long, I think we really can surge these numbers and start to see a virtuous cycle so that even if we can't get all the way to 70% in every single country that we get uh, the vast majority of developing countries across that threshold. Yeah. 
No, that's good to hear. And and we'll we want to keep people updated on, on this because it's you know it as important as any story in the world doesn't get a ton of attention. I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned the bright spot of Zambia, and it, it kind of triggered in my mind. You know, if you and I were, you know, sitting around having a drink, um, one of the things that you are usually good at is kind of identifying that that bright spot out there in the world, <laughs> that uh, that that country that 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 small country that is proving the haters wrong on a democratic transition or people who are resisting um, an encroachment or, or, you know, an effort by Russia to interfere in their affairs. I mean, what, what do you, you guys obviously do a lot of work on the nexus of democracy and development. Um, it looks pretty dark out there right now. <laughs> um, you know, Putin has seized the global conversation. Uh, what, where do you see green shoots of, uh, of, of stories that we have, have not, you know, fully matured, but, that, that we need to get behind uh, in terms of, uh, you know, people out there uh, fighting against the current in some cases. I mean, uh, I'm offering you the chance to give our world those a, uh, something to grab onto for, 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 for some hope uh, out there as an example of, of people. And you, because you'd mentioned when I saw you in Glasgow, Zambia, for example, it could be one example, but uh, what's out there that we should know about? Yeah. I've been giving Zambia a lot of airtime, no matter whatever I can. But okay, let me give you, I'll give you a few examples of countries, but then just to pull it back a little bit, because I think the green shoot is also a little bit philosophical, maybe. Um, so in our own hemisphere, I'm I'm really impressed with uh the Dominican Republic's efforts hmm. to combat corruption and to revamp their police force almost from scratch. And this is something we're in a strategic dialogue, strategic partnership with them. So you know, kind of wonky stuff yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that one Important. doesn't pay that much attention to, but, you know, new procurement laws that just have much more transparency that sort of smokes out a little bit like the open government partnership that you yeah. and I were involved in back in the Obama days and which is still thriving. Um, I think there's a real opportunity there to, to back this reform effort. It's challenged, of course, by um, living next door to Haiti and, and all of the challenges that Haiti faces and the influx of, of, uh, Haitians were living in such despair and lawlessness, uh, but you do see political will to build institutions and a real recognition, I think, on the part of the leadership uh, to, to, again, President Obama's point back in that Ghana speech a long time yep. ago, yep. that what the country needs is not a strong leader, a strong man, but but strong institutions. And, and so more of an investment in that than I think we've seen um, in the neighborhood for for, for some time. Um, you know, I work a lot and USAID works a lot in the Northern Triangle countries because of, yeah. uh, of course, the need to deal with root cause of migration and also because of the development support that those countries need. There is a new president in Honduras yeah. Um, yeah. who has committed to reconstituting the, the UN structure to fight corruption uh, in, in, in her country. She's the first female head of state, you know, in the three Northern Triangle countries that we've had. And, and I got to travel with Kamala Harris down to be part of the inauguration. She has her work cut out for her. And um, there's obviously a huge amount of political polarization in that country. Yeah. But again, the more that we see leaders, and it's not an accident that corruption is what is animating so much of, of the, the, the leadership, you know, when there is a change in government, it's often the people speaking about how disgusted and fed up they are by, by what has come before. So, you know, when, uh, leadership bring in outside institutions recognizing you know the importance of independent rule of law and again the verdict is out as to whether that will stick and whether it will be truly independent rule of law 
Um, but but I think that's something again that we want to work at the United Nations to support as quickly as we can. Yeah. Um, so that's in the hemisphere. I think uh, the two best examples in Africa are Zambia, uh, where the the current president, I think he was arrested something like 18 times uh, before he somehow managed uh, to win. They basically the prior government, which was Chinese backed and and did the worst deals for the for the future of the Zambian people with the Chinese government, allowing the mineral riches of the country to be ravaged and, and accruing such debt. Um, but but they didn't even let the current president even campaign. And it was young people who just said enough. Like we don't if yeah. our if our if our opposition candidate here can't campaign, we're going to campaign uh, on on his behalf. And so he was swept into office again when such a large share of your GDP goes to servicing debt, not of your making, uh, you know, the odds are, are really tough. I mean, he's yeah. up against an, an awful lot. Um, but, you know, as we see in the COVID vaccination drive, there is a commitment to, to good governance and to, and to partnership and to shifting away from, uh, you know, the kind of infrastructure arrangements that look so attractive to these countries in the short term but in Zambia, all they saw was Chinese workers coming in and, and building the infrastructure yeah. and then projects that had such large cost overruns and now debt, uh, you know, that, that will take generations to, to, to pay off. Um, so there's a lot of buyer's remorse there. And what's really important is that not only that USAID and other U.S. agencies are in there, but that we draw the private sector and other civil society actors and foundations to these opportunities that exist um, in sub-Saharan Africa. I want just to pull back though, if I could Ben for a second, because I could give you a little isolated examples around the world. There aren't that many, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I did want to just talk uh, for a second about what President Biden did in convening the world's leaders you know, at the Democracy Summit uh, in early December and I just feature, uh, there, there were a couple features of that that I think uh, are worth um, underscoring. First, we actually rolled out really interesting, fresh democracy programming. And I'll just offer like a few examples from, from the USAID side of the house, which is, um, you know, one of the oligarchs and dictators tools that they have sort of uh, brought online in, in recent years is basically to sue people who are uncovering their yeah. corrupt yeah. misdeeds. Yeah. And yeah. one of one of my first meetings I had actually was with Ukrainian journalists and civil society members in my first week in the job. They were describing that, that the, the yeah. playing field was never level. Yeah. But now it's yeah. even less level because, you know, these guys have a ton of money to throw at lawsuits and, you know, you're plucky civil society or transparency international chapter, yeah. you know, are, are operating, uh, you know, a little bit more hand to mouth. That happened, by the way, Sam, you mentioned uh, Catherine Benton, who was on this program, who wrote Putin's People. That happened to her. They All, all the oligarchs sued her um, for libel. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so this is like the autocrats playbook, right, yeah. which evolves. And so we have to watch how it evolves. And so what we've done is we've created a defamation fund, basically, hmm. where in a sense, it's like insurers aren't all that anxious necessarily yeah, to yeah, insure yeah. those actors who are uncovering, you know, the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, or whoever, whatever is the local version of that in any particular country. But if we can think about this as a collective, so we're now hmm. uh, going to be contributing to this fund that we're uh, helping design 
bringing other donors, foundations to bear to try to insulate against these, these really important actors so that they're able to do their work without this specter of being shut down um, or, or jailed. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a panacea, don't get me wrong, but it's an example, I think, of what are the tools we need for this moment, not the moment in the 1990s when yeah. some of the democracy programming was first uh, rolled out. The second thing is relates to what, what you alluded to earlier, which is, is there a way when there's a democratic opening to uh, channel not just more democracy assistance, you know, not just more support for the civil society partner that's holding that government accountable or, yeah. you know, election integrity assistance, which of course we need to be doing as well, given Russia and China's, uh, you know, interference in, in uh, you know, election uh, campaigns and so forth. All that is incredibly important. But what a reformer most needs to show his or her people is that there is a dividend. It's what President Biden talks about here domestically so much. And so another thing that we are doing at USAID, to your point, is to try to marry our democratic opening with our development assistance and our development programming. Yeah. And as USAID administrator, I'm also the vice chair of the Development Finance Corporation, uh, which is run by Scott Nathan. And we're talking a lot to them about, okay, well, what does it mean to bring in development finance, you know, what about loan guarantees? Yeah. How can we bring private sector delegations to places that are doing really hard things so that it isn't just, again, that you have strengthened your election monitoring presence, right? Your democracy programming, yeah. but that actually the people can see that there are more job opportunities or that the recovery from COVID happens at a more accelerated pace than it, than it might have. So these are just a couple examples, but yeah. if you look at what came out of the democracy summit, yeah, uh, I just really, for the first time, had a sense that we're 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 really freshening our our way of thinking about what this fight is. The second thing I wanted to just mention about it is it really has had the effect of causing Russia and China to be just talking an awful lot about democracy. Yeah, I noticed. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, and you know, it's a, I don't know if you, you if, if I don't know if you can take it as exactly affirming, but. Um, they do spend a lot of time, President Xi, President Putin, the ministers around them, talking about how irrelevant the democracy summit was, and and uh, you know, more on the defensive. It feels in terms of messaging about the relative merits of different systems, and even claiming the democracy yeah. mantle yeah. in China's case to an extent. I think that we hadn't seen before. So again it's all complicated to integrate human rights and democracy into American foreign policy in a consistent way. All your listeners know yeah. that better than I do. Um, and so there are no panaceas, but I think that that summit, if we can actually act on what President Biden and the other leaders who gathered launched, which is a year of action, yeah. where we take the commitments that various leaders made, whether to give democracy support to countries uh, that need it, including subnational actors, not just yep. you know leaders like we've been talking about, um, but also that there were countries that are were sort of controversial even to be at the summit. Some of them, yeah. and some yeah. just experiencing these openings like Moldova, Zambia, Dominican Republic, like like we discussed. Um, if we can throw our weight behind those reformist efforts, I, I think it's really important because there's no better talking point or proof point of the, the merits of the democratic approach than a democratic reformer actually being able to deliver on the promises that they have made by creating a, a, a more welcoming business environment, by 
you know, creating economic opportunities because there's less corruption. You know, if we can, if yeah. we can have examples where doing the political reform and economic reform work translates into results for citizens, it feels like that is going to be ultimately the greatest rebuttal uh, to the to the Chinese effort, which is so well resourced yeah. to create this kind of narrative of self fulfilling prophecy of democracy's retreat. Well, look, I, it's a great note of. Uh, of of you know not maybe not optimism but like get to work <laughs> um from you to end on because i mean it ties together like the the thing about ukraine and putin is you know he he wants this conversation to be entirely about you know his, his view dueling view of ukraine and history and all the rest of it and nato with ours there's a much bigger contest out there <laughs> between what putin represents um and what uh xi jinping represents and what people who want to have uh, the capacity to control their own destiny, whether it's a country like Ukraine or whether it's an individual around the world, this is what's at stake. So the, the, it, the, it's not just sanctions that have to be the response um, to what's happening. It has to be an investment in the kind of approaches that you just talked about. Um, look, thanks for joining us. Howard Declan and Reen doing, uh, you know, uh, some of our listeners may, may keep up with the, uh, the, the Power Sunstein family. <laughs> they're okay. They're, they're, uh, you remember Declan's immortal line when he was six and I was an absent yeah, parent. Yeah. Putin, Putin, Putin. And yeah, it was Putin, Putin, Putin. When is it ever going to be Declan, Declan, Declan? And now I think he's old enough to really see the, <laughs> yeah, the human yeah. stakes of this. So it's it's uh, it's even more pronounced, I think, the, fo- the focus on, on, uh, on what's happening in the world, uh, in our household. And like you, you know, we all struggle to to talk to our kids in a manner that they can understand. Yeah. I mean, on one level, Putin is the most understandable to kids who watch, you know, s- superhero movies, right? Where there yeah. are archetypal, you know, villains who come in and take things from people that they don't belong. So on one hand, it's it seems so explicable, but then, uh, you know, our kids are growing up in a world that just has a, has a feel of volatility yeah. and danger uh, that, you know, the last couple of generations haven't, haven't had that same feeling. And so, um, you yeah. know, hopefully, um, we, we can, we can enlist them in the, in the, in the yeah. cause of, of making our, our world and our society better and not, and not have them turn off, uh, from events that just seem bigger, bigger than them. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's a, no, it's a, that's a parenting a, challenge that we all, that we all, face. It, it is, it is a challenge. And, uh, you know, I, I was hard myself. I watched the Kenyan, uh, speech at the, your old stomping at the UN. Uh, uh, and it's a reminder though, that you have to remind your kids that most people are, are fundamentally decent, you know? Um, and, uh, there's some bad leaders out there and some bad forces, but, uh, it's not a reason to give up on other people. Um, but hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to catch up like this, and uh, I hope to catch up with you in person soon. You too, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Samantha Power, as always, for joining us and for uh, her great work. Thanks to Max Seddon, as well, for giving us that perspective from Moscow. Thanks to you uh, for sticking with us through uh, every step of this crisis. We will endeavor to keep you updated um, no matter what happens uh, as we can, and we'll see you either next week or if need be before.
Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>